You finally remember to bring your reusable bags to the grocery store. I think we need the wall. And there was just too much to lose that we didn't care if it was a done deal. We were gonna fight that till the end. I want our listeners to understand that environmental justice, social justice, and racial justice are often one and the same. As we learned in episode two of our show, decisions are being made about people of color and indigenous communities with very little understanding about their lived experiences. Challenges with racism, socioeconomic struggles, and geopolitical realities are at the crux of environmental justice. On today's show, Bag Bands and Border Walls, we're going to dissect the concept with two incredible women in very different parts of the world who happen to be fighting the plastics industry head on. I'm your host, Shilpi Chotre, and this is People Over Plastic. I met Trisha Cortez at an environmental justice gathering where I learned about her long battle fighting the plastic bag in her community in Laredo, Texas. Let me tell you about Trisha. Here she was, the super energetic woman, petite in stature, but with a presence that could be felt by everyone in the room. And she's the executive director of the Rio Grande International Study Center, Laredo's only environmental nonprofit. Despite how humble she is, in 2019, she was named Laredoan of the Year. Trisha, you've always spoken so fondly about Laredo. Tell me about the place you live. I've lived in Laredo more than 20 years. I came in 2001. I was a reporter, uh, a print reporter, when I came here. And I thought I'd be here a year or two and take off and go out west. But I was, I didn't know much about Laredo or the border. And I became fascinated by this place. I became fascinated by the political culture is so quirky. And there were so many characters and Laredo was really growing and it had been insular for so long. Laredo is the largest inland port for the entire country. We get about 16,000 diesel trucks moving through here every day. So this place moves a lot of commerce for the country. Wow. And I did a quick study on Laredo. It used to be in Mexico and before that largely indigenous. Um, Can you talk a little bit about these sort of deep historical roots in, in tradition and culture? It's like American, but it's very Mexican. Um, but there's kind of deep pride in from being from both places. And, you know, the this community is 95% Hispanic. It is the most Hispanic city in the United States. But uh, generally speaking, there is a pride in being bilingual and bicultural. And then there was a lot of this settling that happened because of the Rio Grande. I mean, this place was settled because of the river. 
case you didn't know, the Rio Grande is one of the principal rivers in the southwest. It has real cultural significance as part of its nearly 1,900 miles flows between Texas and Mexico. Trisha, why is the Rio Grande so important to the people of Laredo? The river's our only source of drinking water um, for us and millions of other people up and down the border, period. And it, it was in a rapidly deteriorating state. Uh, nobody really paying attention to it. Um, problems with um, overallocation of water, with raw sewage, uh, flows with heavy metals. So in the early to mid 2000s, these plastic bags, they were on the banks of the river. They were all over the creek sheds, getting into all the storm drains. I and mean, it didn't matter what part of town you were in, wealthy or poor, they were just everywhere. As many of us know, it's hard to imagine a life without plastic. But let's be real, it only started coming into the picture in the 50s and then went out of control in the 80s. But we used to be perfectly fine without it. And Trisha, who would oppose this? Why would anyone go against banning the bag, knowing the amount of destruction it was causing? This little group of downtown merchants, like a very small group, very vocal, very loud, they just hated it. And the Texas Supreme Court has ruled the city of Laredo's ban on plastic bag violates the law. Just a couple of hours ago, the Texas Supreme Court struck down an ordinance in Laredo that bans plastic bags. The Laredo Merchants Association brought the lawsuit against the city. Laredo ban on plastic bags violates state law. And they just said, you're gonna wreck business. You're gonna stop people from shopping. This is so inconvenient. And so they hired a lobbyist from the American Chemistry Council who came in 2008. Due to her work, the forward movement that was happening uh, just ended. And it just went, Just they, they were able to kill it at city council uh, with their downtown city council member through this lobbyist. Let's take a moment to talk about the significance of the American Chemistry Council getting involved. The ACC is an industry front group with all these leading chemical and plastic makers globally. I'm talking about Exxon, I'm talking about Dow, and I'm talking about DuPont. These are major producers of plastic. Let's put it this way, the ACC is typically the bag band's biggest opponent in cities and states around the country. It's literally their battleground. And let me tell you what they do. They will hire lobbyists, they'll pay for radio ads, and they'll use this pro-poor argument that working-class families can't pay for a reusable tote. It's just very frustrating because, you know, there were multiple drafts done. They were even going to carve out the central business district of Laredo and give them a five-year uh, window to transition, and they were still like, nope. People have been inspired by the ban in San Francisco, which was the first one in the country. And they were like, well, why can't we do that too? You know, but there was always like, oh, but Laredo's poor and people here just don't have a, a consciousness to clean up after themselves. And we need to fine everybody for littering. I mean, there's, there is this elephant in the room around politics and the political state of Texas being very red. You talked about San Francisco earlier, California being a blue state. Do you think because Texas being a Republican majority, does that have anything to do with this decision? 
And when you look at those commissioners, they themselves come out of those industries as well. So it's very compromised because you've got a lot of cash going in through campaign contributions as well um, with a lot of these elected officials. The plastic bag campaign, that took us 10 years. And we eventually lost at the Texas Supreme Court due to industry money and a border wall that was gonna get built. We're gonna build the wall, we have no choice. We have no choice. We're in the middle of a crisis on our southern border. The unprecedented surge of illegal migrants from Central America is harming both Mexico and the United States, and I believe the steps we will And in the, the other words, right now, it's a vital tool, it's an important tool, it's maybe the most important very, tool that they can think of. Wall. We're going to build, build the wall. wall, we have no choice, we have wall. no choice. Build that wall. A nation build that without wall. borders build is not a nation. Build that wall. Okay, Trisha, the border wall. Let's get into it. In 2019, during the height of the Trump era, your organization, alongside other community leaders, filed a lawsuit against the Trump administration's plan to build a border wall between Laredo and the Mexican border. This in and of itself is a huge act of courage. The proposed wall would have destroyed 71 river miles and cost more than a billion dollars in taxpayer funds. You know, we didn't go looking for this fight and there was no way around it. So for us, it started right around the time of Donald Trump's um, declaration of a national emergency on the southern border, and that happened in February of 2019. And we'd already heard a few months leading up to that that the wall was coming, and we never, I don't know why, we just never thought it was going to come to Laredo. And, you know, the border wall was never about immigration or border security. It was this political scheme to just build something to make people in the far right happy and have this middle finger of a symbol on our lands facing Mexico. No Trump, no wall, no USA. But what about the rest of the community? What about the rest of the people, the private landowners that don't want the, the wall in their, on their land? What we stood to lose was so profound. It was our parks and nature trails and neighborhoods, parts of the college, a Catholic orphanage, lots and lots of family ranches, um, these really iconic um, historic sites with um, archaeological and indigenous kind of finds just in our county. So we knew what was at stake because the border wall, it wasn't just this massive 30 foot high a steel wall, which is more than twice the height of the Berlin Wall. Well, and I imagine if they had used the money for putting it back into the community instead of this symbol of hate. So part of our campaign was defund the wall, fund our future, where we tried to pivot to, to, to say exactly what you're saying that we felt was important. So what was going to happen with the wall is we would have lost access to the river forever because they wanted to create a security enforcement zone that would have taken off at least 200 feet off the river um, that would have permanently belonged to the U.S. government. This just infuriated us because we are American citizens. 
And we didn't have recourse or access to laws that were put in place to protect us. And we felt that they were doing this, not just because of where we are, but because of who we are. It's true, Trisha, because I live in the Bay Area. I would never go through what you're going through, right? It is because it's 95% Latinx. It is because these are communities that have traditionally not been speaking up. And it is because they've been historically placed in cycles of harm. What I think is so brilliant is that you're using the power and resilience to flip the script. And this is a huge win. I know Earth Justice was representing this case. Can you talk to me about that collaboration? So after the National Emergency Declaration, I want to say it was in the next one to two months, we became their lead plaintiff. It was risk et al. versus Donald Trump et al. How in the world are we going to do this David versus Goliath fight? Like, how are we going to do this? How did you mobilize your people to fight this? Okay, the border wall is a national story. And how do we make Laredo a national story? We just really struggled with this. George Floyd had had just been killed and we were seeing this massive movement happening in the country and around the world. We felt this connection to that of of injustice, right? Because justice at the heart of it, it's like, who's making decisions for you and not involving you that's gonna benefit them and hurt or harm or threaten you, right? And so we really understood that very well. And this coalition has changed the dynamics in this community for sure in the sense of people power and people understanding how they can move and change things. So, you know, we did a huge defund the wall, fund our future uh, street mural. And so right when we did that street mural, Steve Bannon, you know, got wind of it right away and just unleashed his minions on us and, and the fury. So we were like, we hit our target. Our target was the White House. Steve Bannon, being the former White House chief strategist to Trump, I still get a nasty feeling when I hear his name. Yes, who ended up getting convicted for a border wall scheme down in the valley, by the way, or indicted, got indicted. And uh, so we knew we'd hit our target. Long story short, Shilpi, we did a series of actions that got like, you know, quarter million hits that just went viral. And we just kept trying to figure out how do we keep it going? How do we keep it going? You know, they told us over and over and over, you know, that this is a done deal. The money's there. Why are you fighting this? Why can't you compromise? Why can't you go fight something else? And there was just too much to lose that we didn't care if it was a done deal. We were going to fight that till the end. And I knew things were going to change in a very profound way within this community of activism. I want to make this this point that what you've done is not just less this atrocious 30-foot steel wall from turning your community into reminiscent of a prison, but it's also debunking this really fucked up narrative that without this wall, we're letting in more drugs and criminals. We're, we're going to be unsafe. They're here illegally. When you look at FBI crime data, we rank among the safest of, of cities of our size within the United States. Secondly, you know, drugs 
They come in through the ports of entry. Overwhelmingly, DEA reports show that a border wall was never going to fix the problem of drugs in America. It was never about fixing, you know, immigration issues, which are complicated and require complicated solutions. Not. Not something like a wall and solutions based on empathy, not fear, and and involve us, right? Like involve our community, involve the the landowners, people who work with immigrants, those of us who are river advocates that really know this river. I mean, you have to involve these stakeholders. It's just so incredibly inspiring what you've done in Laredo, and I hope that your story will inspire people especially communities that live in these sorts of geopolitical states, to really rally the grassroots uh, support. So before we close, I would love to know, in your mind, do you see a connection between your work with bag bans and the border wall? Yes. Yes. I mean, because at, at the heart of everything, it's it's a justice movement. So why, for example, the bag ban, why is it that industry, those guys don't live here? We worked for years. Our city council passed an ordinance about what we wanted for our community, what we felt was best. And why is it that industry can come in and spend so much money and reverse that and say what's going to happen to us at, at our expense? That's infuriating. And it's, it was the same thing with the border wall. If you had a message to other community organizers fighting for justice, what would it be? I just, I'm so grateful you're doing this uh, to your listeners, those of y'all out there. Um, you know, don't ever back down. When you're motivated by what you love, um, there's just nothing that can stop that. I, I just believe that now. Next up, we're jumping over to Malawi, the warm heart of Africa. I'm so excited to introduce you to our next guest, my friend and colleague, Gloria Majiga Komodo. Simply put, Gloria is a badass. She is a dedicated community leader who went through a four-year relentless battle against the plastic industry in support of a national ban on thin plastics, including the plastic bag. I have to share her story with you. Gloria, you're a mother, a world-renowned environmental activist, and a symbol of hope and perseverance for your community. In 2019, the Malawi High Court banned thin plastic, including the bag, after a four-year relentless battle against the plastics industry. But before we get into that fight, I'd love to know more about where you're from. So I grew up in Blanter, and you said world-renowned, and now I'm just stuck on that, like, oh my God, who is this person you're referring to? <laughs> but um, <laughs> I grew up in a really, it's, it's, it's a small town. Um, it's the commercial city of Malawi. I think just everywhere you go in Malawi, one of the things that is most striking about it is the amazing landscapes. Um, we've just always had this beautiful forests and you know mountains it's just so green everywhere you have rivers it's really just the most perfect place 
when I was younger, we used to live in Lilongo and my dad was quite the farmer. So behind our house, we had uh, what we call a dambo or a wetland. And he just used to grow kinds of vegetables there. We had um, a stream that ran through there and my brother used to go fishing some days. So I, I guess I've always been really connected with nature. It's almost inevitable living in Malawi, but um, I've especially grown up very close to nature uh, because of that background. And Malawi is uh, known for being a rich agricultural region. Do you come from a farming lineage? Yes, I mean, everyone in Malawi comes from a farming lineage. Um, I made a comment the other time that when it's not when it's not farming season in Malawi, then it's time to prepare for farming season. You know, I mean, everybody here grows their own food. You know, Malawi is called the warm heart of Africa and it's, it's for a good reason. It's because everywhere you go, we're just very friendly people. Um, I've worked in different communities around the country and you go there and they'll sing songs for you on arrival. I think it's just really amazing and just, you know, something so beautiful to be a part of. Just to shift gears a little bit, because I think, unfortunately, a lot of people don't hear much about Malawi in, in the news. You know, it's not one of the African nations that make headlines a lot. So maybe talk to us about the size of the country, the kind of government, just to paint a little bit more of a picture. So we are a very small country. We're landlocked, but we've got um, the most beautiful lake. It's called the Lake of Stars. And... Um, we a huge part of the country is is not arable but the part that is arable you have everybody engaged in agriculture our population is quite dense we a democratic state over the last couple of years i've really just seen people more actively involved in politics there's just a lot more public participation in, in in governance issues which i think has been really amazing to just be a part of and so before we get into that I want to hear about these iconic chihuahuas. Am I pronouncing that right? <laughs> yes, chihuahua. <laughs> it is probably one of the most popular, uh, you know, snack you ever have in Malawi. So it's just made from Irish potatoes. It's regular fries, actually, but it's it's just cooked in this still makeshift deep fryer and it's cooked on wood most of the times and it's it's pretty much everywhere in the market what is it served in so it's usually served in a in a in a plate if you're sitting there but then something happened at some point you know because people now had a new form of convenience. I know at some point it used to be served in these brown paper bags and suddenly, um, you know, there was just these little blue plastics everywhere you go. Like at every single chihuahua, they just have these little blue plastics which are convenient. In terms of those little blue plastics, what was the moment you decided to get involved in fighting them? I think that it's something that happened over a very short period of time in that before these little blue plastics, it was just life as normal. And then suddenly, these little blue plastics were literally everywhere you look. As you get into a trading center in any place that's got 
any economic activity going on and this was even in the rural areas right it was just really crazy you could all you'd see was just these blue plastics everywhere scattered on trees in the grass um you know in the gullies in the the waterways on the roads they're pretty much just everywhere and because they've become so accessible, and I mean Chihuahua is only just one way of, of accessing these plastics, but because a huge part of our population is in the rural areas, so they don't buy things in bulk. They'll buy, um, you know, some cooking oil today. You'll buy three tomatoes for today's lunch and dinner. You buy an onion today. And for each of these items, if you go to the market, because these plastic bags are free, then each item will come in its own plastic bag. And you were talking to fishers and folks that worked in the agricultural community. Talk to me about those conversations and what was happening to the land and to the animals. And you've already painted such a beautiful picture of why, you know, taking care of the environment is so important to this cultural fabric in, in Malawi. The farmers were stating that um, they were experiencing a new thing, and that was that their goats would swell up in the belly. So this happens when a goat ingests plastic, right? It's, um, it leads to intestinal blockage, and because of that blockage, you can't have anything else passing through. So the tummy swells up, and that's how the farmers would detect that there's nothing I can do about this. Um, and it was really, I think for me, it was, it was on the sidelines, but it was like, this is so shocking. How are we experiencing this because of these plastics? And that's the first time that I learned about that because what they said was once that happens to the gold, you can't save it. You just have to kill it. And I thought that was really sad. You know, many people see these detrimental environmental issues affecting their communities and, and their people, but not everyone gets active. And I know you're a busy mama of a three-year-old. So like, what made you want to go after this major industry, which is the Malawi Plastics Manufacturing Association? I've actually always been interested in public policy, <laughs> which is weird. Uh, but it starts because I just care so much about people. And um, for me, public policy, because I always used to wonder who makes decisions about countries, who makes decisions about what's going on, who decides what we learn in our schools, who decides, you know, what kind of health care we, we access. And I very much know that probably the people that are most affected by the environment and nature is women. So in, in our communities, you know, where women are closest to nature, and but they're not in the rooms making decisions. And for me, that's a huge issue of concern. So there was a, a lot of stuff that happened between 2015 and 2019 within the courts. How did you build the grassroots coalition that wasn't afraid to fight the fight? We mobilized we mobilized we had some marches and we told stories we shared different stories of of people in the media if you think cleaning up is boring you haven't been to malawi every second friday of the month the country holds national cleanup day environmental activist gloria majiga kamoto has organized a cleanup event in her hometown of blantyre it's always a good conversation but working with this um, group of people that are just so passionate about telling the stories about the environment in the way that we should tell them. And that's how much we as humans have a moral obligation to take care of our environment, but also just talking about what we're doing wrong and how we can correct those wrongs. Was it also a shift from blaming the individual to stronger accountability from 
the industry? Absolutely. I think that's one thing that really came out strongly. It was that the problem is the industry because at the time it was very clear that they're the ones that are stopping um, the enforcement of the ban. I, I want to talk about this very public debate you took on an industry lobbyist on TV rejecting the argument that the ban would hurt Malawi's economy. And I cannot wait to find this link if it lives somewhere. Um, Tell me about that debate. Set that stage for us. (laughs) So we just came in from the march, right? I'm still in my sneakers and I'm tired. And then they said, we finally got a plastic company on TV. And, you know, we need to hold this debate. And I said... Okay, let's go. And, and, you know, I went off and I was in the studio. And heels are like my my superpower. I mean, when I wear heels, I feel like you can't hurt me. So this was me in my sneakers trying to tilt because I'm short. (laughs) And so, you know, I mean, I hadn't, we hadn't ever met them. We had made so many attempts to engage in dialogue. I'm naturally also um, someone who is, um, I don't like conflict. I don't like confrontation. And I'm telling him that, you know, listen, I don't care what you have to say, but we have to adapt or we die. And you're killing this country. You're killing nature. You're killing the environment. You guys need to stop producing these plastics. As we all know, politics can be incredibly corrupt. And as you mentioned before, as a woman, how do you navigate this? Oftentimes, you find yourself in a position where you're going against some political interest that you've got no idea about. Um, And it's quite frustrating because you invest quite a lot of capacity building in policymakers, decision makers, and, you know, just try to help them to understand why they need to be more proactive. But the moment that there's a political interest, it's almost like these things don't matter. Um, And that's almost frustrating because for me, I think the principle should remain the same at all times. Well, I know even with the plastics issue, you were telling me before that the plastic companies were financing the political players. So it's like many layers of corruption. Yeah, there was a time um, during the just prior to the elections, right? So this is a minister of environment trying to gain, I don't know if it was political traction with the companies, but he announced publicly that uh, uh, companies should continue to produce single-use plastics, which was ironic because this is a regulation that was developed within your ministry. And this is just how low you're willing to sink to, to get to that point. You know, despite all of this corruption, all of the struggles, this four to five year long aggressive mobilization against the plastics industry with this level of country politics, you were still able to win. And I think that's what's so inspiring is this community based grassroots, you know, talking to people, getting the information, getting the stories out there it does lead to success. And I am just so inspired by your work. For outstanding environmental achievement for Africa, the 2021 Goldman Environmental Prize is awarded to Gloria Machiga Kamoto, Blantyre, Malawi. Tell me about the winning the Goldman. How, how did that feel? I think it's really amazing. It's been life-changing, to be honest. Um, I often have times where I think um, this is a mistake. I I don't know if um, they got the right person. 
but i've also slowly started to make peace i very firmly believe in purpose and that um, every life has got a purpose and for that i'm very grateful to not just represent myself but i recognize that this is not just about me it's about the people that fought this fight it's about our government and the efforts that were made by people in the system who will never be recognized but they've done so much it's about malawi which you already said it's such a small country but listen we're also trying to make a difference out there if you think about the plastic fight across the globe and to think that a small country like Malawi is trying to make these kinds of strides, I think it's something worth, you know, it's praiseworthy, it's something worth noticing, it's something worth recognition. Trisha and Gloria's work fighting against the plastics industry, and the plastic bag in particular, reminds me of an important U.S. policy win in the state of Colorado. Colorado's Plastic Pollution Reduction Act bans plastic bags and is phasing out styrofoam cups and containers. The best part? The law also stops oppressive state preemption laws, which means cities can now oppose the state on certain issues, like banning the bag. Simply put, Cities cannot implement a bag ban where preemption exists. This is what happened in Laredo. Colorado is quickly becoming a leader in the fight against plastic pollution and is a great example for other states to follow. And that's our show. Hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed making it for you. Trisha and Gloria are incredible women that I've had the honor to work with. Thank you ladies for trusting us with your stories. You can learn more about them in our show notes. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at PeopleXPlastic. See you next time. Bye.